0: So good evening once again, everybody. Welcome to our third night of the mission. Let me go ahead and start with a prayer. In the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, thank you all for showing up. We're going to kind of try to bring it all together, wrap it all up tonight. Very brief recap of the past two nights. For those maybe who, who weren't here, trying to look at this question of lack of devotion to the Eucharist that we see in the world and the Church today, and the struggle with a attendance at Sunday Mass. And My argument was that this is a symptom of a deeper problem or problems. The first night we looked at the fact that we struggle as a society, as a Church, to keep the Sabbath holy, to rest, and if we can't rest, we can't worship. Yesterday I tried to use the thought of Pope Benedict, Cardinal Ratzinger, to talk about how we have come out of touch with the rhythms of the world and the Church's liturgical calendar. We need to, to cultivate a place to be connected to the land, to the, the heritage that we have, to the seasons of the Church, in order to be able to worship effectively. Tonight, I want to spend some time looking at a third piece that, in my own prayer and reflections, I think is the third factor contributing to this issue. Now, again, I'm not saying that if we do all the things I'm suggesting, then all of a sudden the church is going to be packed. I'm not saying that at all. I think that we can set the the ground or the foundation for a potential renewal, so, like usually, I'm going to try to look at some of the fundamental theological and spiritual principles, have recourse to scripture, and then try to diagnose the issue, and then offer uh, my own sort of solution. And really tonight, trying to specifically, drawing from some sort of my own experience, more than, let's say, theological stuff that we did last night, and to try to offer an exhortation and a message of hope. So my... My desire is that tonight's will be a little less theological and theoretical and I want to start as I'm going to end with my own experience as a priest even though I'm at the seminary now I spent 11 years doing campus ministry over in Lafayette uh, at the University of Louisiana and it was a wonderful 11 years I learned a lot there one of the things going into ministry and during my time there i heard about and was always sort of reminded of is this fact or this study that of catholic high school students who go to college whether it be secular or catholic college by the time they leave 80 percent no longer practice their faith maybe they are atheists maybe they just don't go to mass anymore maybe they've left the catholic church And so I'd always get this question, Father, how do we get kids, how do we get college kids to to not lose their faith when they go to college? What kind of seeds can we plant? What can we do? And I had a lot of experience with this, and I think I know the solution. I'm not saying how we're going to implement the solution, but at least I know what the problem is and what the solution should be, and it's going to be the third R. I like to have alliterations. The first R was rest. The second was rhythm. And today's R is relationship. Relationship. In order to live our faith, whether you're a Catholic college student or you're a regular person, you can't do it alone. Impossible. Not going to happen. Particularly, as a college student, if you're hanging around a bunch of drunks, a bunch of losers, and a bunch of perverts. You're not going to make it successfully. You're gonna go to college, and oh, I have my rosary, I love Jesus, but then you end up joining a group, it could be a fraternity, or sorority, or just anybody, who are out partying on the weekends all the time. You're going to lose your faith. You're gonna probably lose some other things too, Probably also gain some other things too that don't go away. It's a different story, but I could tell it. He would come to confession and they would confess this partying and this drunkenness and this drinking. And I'd say, let me guess, are you doing that alone? Are you at home in your dorm just putting back a six pack of beer? No, because I learned this. College students don't drink alone. Adults drink alone. College students drink with their friends. And if they're out drinking every night, they're drinking with people that are not helping them get to heaven. You need to have solid friends, good relationships, people ideally who might be your spiritual director or your mentor, your discipler, and you need to be integrated into a larger community. So it's good if you just have, oh, this is my buddy and we're hanging out and we're going to mass, but you gotta be part of a bigger community. That's so important, this broad range of relationships. If you have it in college, your faith will survive. Not only will it survive, but it could possibly grow and be very, very fruitful. Not only during your time at college, but afterwards, where you maintain a lot of the same friendships, you grow in community, although it's much more challenging because quite often you're going to find that the same vibrant community you might have had in college doesn't exist in most parishes. So my focal point tonight is, yes, what I learned from these college students, but it applies to everyone. If we want our faith to grow, if we want to end up, as we're going to get to the end, about the importance of Sunday Mass, we have got to have solid faith relationships and a real vibrant community. It's because of the lack of these things, I think a lot of the times, people are not going to Sunday Mass. We're going to mention a little bit later on, but why do you think they're going to the evangelical churches? Yeah, maybe they have coffee and donuts, and they have a great entertaining liturgy, but they have community, and they are kicking our derriers in it. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But it's not everywhere. We can form good community and solid relationships. So what is the importance of relationship? Why is this so important? Is because we are not monads. We're not these little individuals floating around. We exist within a network of relationships everyone has a fundamental relationship you got a mom or a dad you're a child those relationships we come into the world with it it defines who we are our family is the fundamental sort of community in which we live we develop friendships over time we get to know people some very close some lifelong maybe some just for a period of time and this is society we're social beings. We're political beings. We need a community. We can't do it alone. And so the way that sort of we've evolved, babies, little, little, you ever watch these videos of horses and they, they, they give birth to a little baby horse. That horse just starts taking off. You can't do that to a human baby. Now, of course, we, we need care and, and, and the mom and the dad and the community to care for the baby. That's why like we build churches and horses don't, because of the way that we evolved. because we have so much care and so much tenderness over the years. So not only can we not live alone, because we're going to really drill this in, we can't worship alone either. We can't have faith alone. Yes, you can go into your room and pray with Jesus and that's wonderful but you are brought into the church through baptism you were a member of the body of Christ you're stuck with all the Christians and Catholics around the world whether you like it or not we're all connected here we're all in it together And as a society and as a church we are undergoing a crisis of relationships crisis of community I don't think I need that's not news to anybody here if it is why you really are an introvert and this is part of my diagnosis we've been talking about it and we're going to get into sort of some of the reasons for the problems with community is this lack of relationship and authentic genuine community in society but more importantly here for our purposes in the church is a Contributing factor along with the lack of rest and the lack of placeness in cultivation that leads to a crisis of Eucharistic belief and a lack of Sunday mass attendance. We are called to worship together as Christians, as the body of Christ. We don't necessarily need to sit next to each other in the pew all the time, but if the church was packed, we could. It would be great. There's a vibrancy there. There's nothing like walking into a church that is packed and standing room only. There's a vibrancy there. And so what we want to do is I want to get to this crisis and some of the roots of it. But we've got to sort of lay the foundation first. Yes, we are relational beings. We are social beings. And we can understand that from a sociological perspective, from a psychological perspective, but we also can understand it from a theological perspective. And that's, I guess, sort of the driving point of the focus today. This is why you're here at the mission, not the university. I'm not here just to talk about psychology. The fundamental tenet of Christian anthropology, that we as humans are created for relationships. In fact, if you want to really get down to it, persons exist only in relationship. The divine persons of the Trinity, their personhood is defined by their relationship, father to son and father and son to spirit. As I said earlier, we are persons who come from someone and from somewhere. Our parents immediately, but ultimately from God, who infuses our soul. We cannot be closed in on ourselves. We're born into the world already in relationship. And one of the individuals who I've sort of been quoting over the course of our time together is Pope Benedict, writing as Cardinal Ratzinger. For him, this idea of relationship, along with John Paul II, even though Ratzinger is just easier to read than John Paul II and easier to quote, believes in this importance of relationship to develop an adequate anthropology. He writes, it needs to be stressed that no man is closed in on himself, that no one is capable of living entirely of himself or for himself alone. We receive our lives each day from without, from others who are not ourselves yet relate to us in some way. Man's self is not contained only within himself, but exists almost even more so outside of himself. Not only where we come from, but we're constantly in relationship. We're communicating. We're connecting. We're living in a city. We have a family that we're connected to. Now, The really interesting part here is, and something that I've been reflecting on a lot lately, and this is a key point for rat singers anthropology we don't just exist in relationship because you could say okay well father we all exist in relationship but I don't got to talk to you I don't have to interact with you but that's not an authentic relationship we're called not just to relationship but Ratzinger says we're called to dialogue dialogos we're going to exchange some words we're going to be in conversation with other persons My primary dialogue goes to God. We're in dialogue with the Lord. Ratzinger says again, the distinguishing mark of man seen from above is his being addressed by God. The fact that he is God's partner in a dialogue, the being called by God. So God calls first and we respond. This is prayer. Our being, if it's defined by dialogue with God, it's defined by prayer. We're called to pray. Dogs are not. The the cool birds that I'm going to go visit this weekend at the zoo are not. They can't pray. They can't relate to each other. I mean, they can in their own bird way, but not in the way that humans can. Birds are smarter than you think. Go watch videos of crows fixing problems. They're, They're smarter than most boys in college. At least when it comes to dating girls. I give you give a talk called Birds Are Smarter Than Boys when it comes to dating girl, attracting girls. know, they have their cool little clothes, they do their little dance, some birds even build things. Most college boys don't. But anyhow. But then we because of that, we relate to each other. We're constantly talking to each other, expressing our needs, our hopes, our desires. We're in dialogue. But what is this word about? What is this logos that we speak? It can't be, oh, you're a jerk. You're in my way. Why aren't you taking right on red? This is driving me crazy. We're called to speak words and to enter into relationships and dialogue of love. We're created for love. This is what it really is all about. Love of God and love of neighbor and love of self which is a different topic. We're called to to live in love, and that love is expressed in that total gift of self. Love is more than just emotions. I may have a lot of emotions. We need to have lots of feelings of love. But we love each other by giving ourselves to each other, by making that sacrifice, particularly for Christians, that agape, that love that is poured into our hearts, Vatican II says so importantly, man only finds himself through the sincere gift of self. And it really is love. Not only giving, but also receiving love. Man is also a receptive being. So if love is gift of self, I give myself to you, but i got to receive love too. And love calls us out of ourselves. I've been quoting different individuals. This is one of my, my favorite quotes from... Dorothy Day, many of you may know, is that Catholic, sort of the Catholic worker, and she has a book called The Long Loneliness, and talking about how we're not called to live in isolation, and so many people do. We're called to go out of ourselves in service to each other, to love. She says, we cannot love God unless we love each other. And to love, we must know each other. We must know him in the breaking of bread and we are not alone anymore, quote's going to become important? Heaven is a banquet, and life is a banquet. Important too. It's festive. We're having a good time. Even with a crust where there is companionship. Even if I'm only eating in a crust, if I'm eating with you, we're, we're there. We're at that banquet. We're in communion with each other. We've all known the long loneliness, and we have learned that the only solution is love and that love comes with community now yeah, we love our spouses we love our friends but we have to show love within the context of a larger community why i love teaching the seminarians this this twofold commandment of love why are we called to love our neighbor was it just that you know, the trinity was sitting up there and thinking well i got nothing better for them to do let me have them love each other no We're commanded to love each other because we are supposed to mediate God's love to other people. When I love someone with the heart of Christ, Christ is loving them through me. When spouses love each other, it's a constant reminder that God the Father loves them. That's the command. And as we give of ourselves, as we love, what ends up happening? In our theological lingo, we end up creating the communion of persons. We call it community, but it's communio personarum. It could be the small community, the family, built on a marriage, or the communion of man and woman. It could be a church parish. It could be society. It could be the community of persons in the world. It's the web of relationships that define us. And it's within that larger community of persons where we're affirmed in our being, where we're supported. And even though I may not be close to you, I can be in solidarity with others who are suffering because we all share that common humanity. If you really want to go deep with theology, it is the fulfillment of being created in the image and likeness of God. John Paul II, a very important teaching of his, is that we... Find that image of likeness of God not so much in isolation but in communion. Why? Because God is a trinity, a communion of Father, Son, and Spirit, shared in love. And so we're imaging God when we live in community. But here's the sort of the, the real final point that I want to make here outside of the importance of relationship and love and community. For Christians, and here specifically for Catholics, the ultimate form of community for us to live in and exist in is the church we through baptism are members of the church the body of christ and granted this is foreshadowed in the old testament with the formation of israel founded on the 12 tribes of israel yahweh formed his people He called them, he loved them, he fed them, he cared for them. And then Christ comes, who is the bridegroom, who says, yes, I'm going to marry the church, consummates that relationship, and the church comes from his side, the life of the sacraments. The Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost. And we are now able to not only share in Christ's resurrected life through baptism, by sharing in his passion, death, and resurrection, we become members of his body, the church, the church, Yes, through baptism we're connected to Jesus. We're connected to the Father. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But here, as Ratzinger says, we're also connected to each other. We forget that. For in Christ the man we meet, God. But in Him, this is Jesus, we also meet the community of those others whose path to God runs through Him and so through one another. The orientation toward God is in him, Christ, and at the same time toward the community of mankind. And only the acceptance of this community is movement towards God. What does not exist apart from Christ, and thus not apart either from the context of the whole human history of humanity and its common task. Technically, he's talking about something a little bit larger, but for the sake of our argument today, he's talking about the church. We're connected to Jesus, yes, but we're also connected to his body. We're all in this together. And as a result, not only are we all connected, that we are all moving forward, journeying towards heaven together, none of us are saved alone. I'm not Jesus, Jesus, yes, He came to save me. He's my personal Lord and Savior. But we're saved together as a church. Pope Francis speaks about this in his encyclical Evangelii Gaudium. God has found a way to unite Himself to every human being in every age. He's chosen to call them together as a people and not as isolated individuals. No one is saved by Himself or herself individually, or by his or her own efforts. God attracts us by taking into account the complex interweaving of personal relationships entailed in the life of a human community. So basically, the Pope is saying, hey look, we've got all these webs, these relationships of human community, but Christ takes it and lifts it up. He sanctifies it. He takes those family communal bonds and they become the bonds of the church. So as baptized Christians, as followers of Jesus, there is an ecclesial dimension to our life. The church becomes the, 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 the place of our action, the place of our living. I mean, really, we receive the faith from others. You didn't teach the gospel to yourself. You didn't go down... To the, to the sink and just put your head down there and baptize yourself. Someone baptized you. Someone taught you. You were We worship together. We journey together. And this is particularly important at the Mass. So we're going to talk about Sunday worship, and it's connected to rest. Yes, it's connected to the land, but if it's connected to community, we're called to worship together. This is the body of Christ. Each parish, each diocese, local church, representing the whole church. We can't just do it by ourselves. We talked about how worship, cult, is the great expression of leisure and joy. I know this is foreign to a lot of people's minds, and sometimes you'd think foreign to young people's minds. But no, when we come together... And there's an excitement to worship and to sing and to receive the gift of the Eucharist and to find true rest on Sunday. It's a parish that's alive. It's a small community that's alive. Sometimes, yes, we're going to mass at 6:30 in the morning and we're tired and we need coffee. I get it. But it should be something we look forward to. I, I, I look, man, 6 p.m. Mass, those college students would come. And we packed, standing room only, and there was an energy and a vibrancy. Nobody was asleep. It wasn't the 7 a.m. Sunday Mass. Or I had to go have people check pulses to make sure they were alive. Want to be there. And that's the really unique thing about a college campus. People choose to be there. No one's forcing them to be there. And so they're involved. They take ownership of their faith. Not all of them, but most of them. But really, from a theological perspective, why is celebrating the Sunday Mass and receiving the Eucharist and celebrating the Eucharist important? It is because the Eucharist forms the body of Christ. The sacrifice of the Mass forms the body of Christ. Here, listen to John Paul II. The Eucharist is not only a particularly intense expression of the reality of the Church's life, but also, in a sense, it's fountainhead. The Eucharist feeds and forms the church. The Eucharist, the body of Christ, forms, is the nutrient for the body of Christ, the church. And so we receive the Eucharist. We receive Holy Communion. We're in union with others. The importance of unity within the church, that sign, that sacrament, of the unity shared amongst Christ's believers and amongst a God-willing all of humanity now this all makes sense we're all called for community we're all members of the church what I want to do though is go back to that theme that we talked about the past two days and that's the theme of Exodus it's kind of running Exodus to the mission and it's important of course because we're reading from Exodus in the Office of Readings. It's so important for our journey, our pilgrimage of Lent, our moving away from slavery to sin, to new life in Christ. And we've seen the importance of two things within the context of both the Exodus, whether we read about it in Exodus or in Deuteronomy. First, the importance of the Sabbath. Remember, hey, the first time it's a three-day journey into the wilderness for us to worship, to have rest from building these god-awful pyramids. Hanging around all these mummies, driving us nuts. We need to rest. We also saw how over time it wasn't just about a three-day rest. You're leaving there totally and I'm giving you new land. You're going to have an identity that is connected to a place. This is your land. But there's another element pay attention again this is potentially evolving in israel's understanding and the way that god chooses to reveal it he not only intends to give israel land but he intends to form a people a nation israel deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 to 9 take some time to meditate on it for you are a people holy to the lord your god The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath which he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, the Exodus, and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So what is he doing? He's forming a people, leading them to freedom of worship possession of land, but you are going to become a community that belongs to me, a nation and covenant that belongs to me. It's communal salvation. And so if we're going to take Exodus and see how it applies to the church, it means that this is going to have to connect back to worship, to cult. For there to be proper worship, there indeed must be rest and freedom to worship there must be a place to worship and there has to be a communal dimension we worship together we worship together you got to have all three sabbath place and relationship or community but we saw some of the struggles that we've been having with resting. We're always so busy. Some of the struggles we're having with placeness and community and cultivation and connecting to the rhythms of the sacred and the profane world. But we're also having some pretty serious struggles in the area of relationship and community. And I'm sure you could guess a lot of the reasons why. I'm going to give you a few of them. They're challenges. One of them, and this is going to be in society and also in the church together, uh, There's, we live in a, a society that values radical individualism. You're the nomad. You're the one who lives by yourself. And not only are you by yourself and you make your own decisions, uh, sort of the predominant anthropology, uh, a lot of scholars will say this, is one call they call expressive individualism. You're an individual, and you have a right and duty to express yourself, your inner self. Who you are and your identity is paramount. And nothing, not even your body, not even your genetics, can stop you. So if I really feel that I am a woman, but I am in a constituted body that is biologically and genetically male, it doesn't matter. What matters is how I feel. That's why why you don't hear born this way anymore. You you don't get into that discussion. Because that would limit you in who you can choose to be. Freedom is complete autonomy. I am this, therefore I am this. And if you critique it, you're attacking me as a person. Just the same as me stabbing you with a knife. Do you want to understand where this all came from? I really, one of the best books that I've read in the past five years is by this guy named Carl Truman. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he talks about how we got into this mess that we're in today. He doesn't give the complete analysis of it, but he gives a a pretty good one. If you want to hear more about it, drive to the North Shore tomorrow, and I'm talking about gender and transgender ideology tomorrow at St. Peter's at 6. So I have lots of talking this week. Not in as nice of a church, though. And, of course, not with as good of a pastor. We also could say, like, hey, the family is the fundamental building block of a society. We see the erosion of the family. We know the statistics. So many end up in divorce. It causes lots of trauma to individuals, especially children. And as a result, that trauma passes on to society. And so if we, and people don't even want to get married anymore, John Paul II says the future of a society passes through the hands of the family. Uh, we see family life breaking down, arguments, dissension. But again, the family as an institution just sort of being redefined or really becoming liquid. When we go back to that liquid modernity. Your foundation doesn't work. I, I, if we learn community, we learn relationship in the family, but if you come from a super dysfunctional family, and everybody has a dysfunctional family, the only one that didn't was Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. We're going to have our own wounds and our own trauma, but this is where we learn to exist in relationship. Another very fascinating thing is when it comes to a larger sort of communal understanding as a state or as a nation, we have some serious distrust in institutions. Granted, a lot of the people who run our institutions, whether they be governments, universities, nonprofits, whatever it is, they have not been very trustworthy. But how can a society function if we don't trust the institutions that make it up, particularly public institutions? One of the great authors that's writing about this is, is a man named Yuval Levin talks about this this crisis of institutional trust we don't trust our institutions and guess what we applied to the church because of the scandal and the way it was handled many catholics don't trust the church as an institution granted the church is more than an institution it's the body of christ but it leads us to not trust others i mean who trusts a politician today no one does that's that's bad that's bad Now, does it mean that we just trust blindly? No, we're not. But where do politicians come from? They come from us. We're producing untrustworthy politicians. And it seems like nobody has the ability to do anything about it. We don't trust our institutions, particularly here. You know, the distrust of, of the police, of universities, whatever it is, it's a real crisis. And over and over again, for so many different reasons, we are seeing the influence of technology. You knew this was coming. You knew I was going to talk about this. As good as it is, and as much as it claims to connect us, what we found is through technology, particularly social media, we don't become more connected. We become more alienated, more divided. The influence of social media, particularly on young women, get up there, and they look at it. Well, Why is she going such a nice vacation? Look at her hair. Why can't my life be this good? I hate myself. Terrible, brings us down and alienates us because we are on the phone all the time or we're texting. Our relationships are mediated. I don't get to talk to you face to face. Now granted, there's a coolness to it. I like it that we can keep in touch. There's a goodness to it. Sometimes it's hard for us to sit down and just let's have a real conversation. Let's make eye contact struggle with genuine interpersonal relationships. Although, part of what I like about the phone is, oh, I don't want to talk to this person right now. You know, I'll talk to them later. And then, you know, you can see the way this connects and in, in, in establishing relationships that lead to marriage. Everybody is on these dating apps now. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. But you, how do you know who this person really is? It's what they tell you they are. How do we establish genuine relationships? I don't sound like I'm getting old here complaining to those young whippersnappers. No, there's a lot of greatness in the younger generation as we're going to see at the end. But this all leads to so much more alienation, isolation. Remember that book written about 20 years ago, Bowling Alone. People are just doing their own thing. There's so much loneliness. And it's causing so much pain. Higher rate of suicide, alcoholism, drug addiction. You do these things because you're in pain. You're trying to kill the pain. And the greatest pain, I think Mother Jesus said it, is, is loneliness, is isolation. People struggling to make friends. You can read about that all the time. Men have a hard time making friends as they get older. I don't know why that is, but this is the truth. We all know it. And the realities of the church also partially because of the scandal, as I said, there's a distrust in the institution. But this is one thing that's always struck me that Ratzinger wrote about. He says, for so many people, Catholics included, they have the attitude, Jesus yes, church no. I got a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't need you to tell me what to do. I don't need a church to tell me how I should act. I'm saved. And yeah, we need that personal relationship with prayer. But guess what? You ain't saved by yourself. I think I've already sort of emphasized that. You can pray by yourself, but we come to Mass to worship as a community. We've got to recognize that. But here's the fact of the matter, y'all. Catholics are doing a terrible job at it. Sorry. I'm not trying to, I can blame people, I can blame bishops, I can blame priests, whatever it is. Granted, part of it is we live a very busy life. Our primary community is our family. We're spending time at home. We're doing whatever. But I have been a priest long enough to know how Catholics act. Are we reaching out and inviting people to come to Mass? Are we making the church and Mass a place people want to come, where they feel welcome? Y'all did a great job over here. Who's that little great guy, the Knights of Columbus dude? I think his name's Steve. Pat, he's rocking it. Man, can you clone him? Cloning's not good, but man, if we had more guys like that, he was, he's out there today. He made me feel so welcome. That's what we want. People want Pat. I can give Pat the shout out. He didn't pay me, nor did he want me to make a shout out for the Knights of Columbus, even though I'm sure he'd love that if I did. What about this? Where does the real, granted, we're coming to Mass and we're going to be praying. Where does the community happen after Mass? But boy, oh boy, some people can't stay until the end of Mass. They can leave after Communion. Oh, i got to get into my car. i got to get out of here. Poof. It's like the rapture happened. Poof. Everybody's stuck up after Mass. Well, where's everybody? The sign of a real vibrant community is people hanging out in the front, talking, visiting, creating fellowship. The Evangelicals, we can complain about them all we want. The Evangelicals are kicking our behind, and they're doing something right. And, and if we know about business and best practices, why aren't we learning from them? We don't need to give up liturgy. We're going we're to focus on that. There's a sense of the sacred. But also true in a certain sense, demographics change. I get it. Parish life is suffering. You know? Uptown churches are not like the suburb churches. I get it. We, we, we have to travel. Mobility is difficult. And also because of that, there's a lack of commitment to a parish. You uphold most Catholics. What is the major deciding factor? It's not the priest's homily. It's not the music. It's what mass is the most convenient. Not only time and place. And so, yeah, this is the thing. You, you have so much choice in our society. You can choose what 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 restaurant to go to. You're going to choose the. And if you have bad food, you're going to not going to survive. If you have bad coffee, you're not going to survive. And so, guess what? It's the same kind of attitude. It's the shopping attitude. If you are not creating something that people want to go to, they're not going to go. So, look, I've been to enough parishes that are completely dead. And you, you, you wonder why. Well, okay, Father, what are you doing? Why are things dead? It could be the preaching, it could be the liturgy. Whatever, But even within the church, it's so bad now. We're supposed to be the unity. But we're fighting with each other all the time. Over the liturgy, over leadership, over this or that. It's hard to get along. There's a loss of unity. And of course, behind it all, there's spiritual warfare going on. One of my favorite things, of course, that Satan is the accuser. But if we as a church are supposed to live in unity, we're supposed to be that, that sacrament of The unity of the Trinity. We're supposed to live together and show what it's like for for brothers and sisters to live in harmony. We're supposed to be a symbol to reflect to the world, a sacred symbol of what life is like in heaven. What's the antonym of symbol? The word symbol comes from the Greek symbolene, ball, 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 to throw. Symbolane is to throw together. What is the antonym? Diabolain, Diabolical. It's diabolical. Diabolain that throws at cross purposes. You could say it pulls apart, but it goes across. It doesn't mean. The evil one wants to destroy the symbolism. He wants to destroy the unity. He wants to destroy the love. Because if you, families break down, if marriages break down, if the church is fighting with each other, guess what? It's not gonna stand. It's also not going to be that sign of that symbol. So what do we do? We want to build back these relationships in our society. Talk a little bit about that. More importantly, in our church. Because it's the right thing to do. And hopefully, if my theory is right, if we build up proper relationships, if we live unity and love and charity in the church, then God willing, people will come back to Mass. Granted, it may not happen right away, but I think it certainly can happen. What are some solutions? There are smarter people than me who can tell you what these solutions are. I'll give you a few. Let's focus on building strong families. Governments can help us out. They surely are not doing that now by rewarding families to break up. Parents building bonds of trust with their children, raising them, loving them, forming them solid in their identity. As we get older, building healthy friendships, we're on this journey together. It's like the Lord of the Rings. We're all going to Mordor. We're going to toss that ring and golem into the fire. One of the the best things I've read over the past several years is an article in the New York Times called The Power of Positive People. I like it because I'm generally glasses half empty, and so I like to hang around positive people. I talk about this in this article, you can find it online, maybe behind the paywall, I don't know, that they, this, this little community in Japan, this town, supposedly has the people who live the longest and are the happiest. And what they do is when they're young, they are formed in these groups called MOAIs, M-O-A-I. And basically it's a friendship group that you are going to have for the rest of your life. You're going to get married. You're going to do other things. But these are going to be your friends. And it's the Moai, the support, the love, the relationship that helps them build up to be so happy. Like another thing is, is we live in in, in a world that is so big and we're receiving news from what's going on in Russia and the world and that's great to be informed, but we forget about our local community. And granted, maybe we're moving more towards that with like, Shop local and organic and all that kind of stuff. But small communities and the community in which we live, it's a Catholic principle called subsidiarity. That something that can be done at the lower level shouldn't be passed up to the higher level. It's more efficient. But also, it's on the lower level where you maintain friendships, particularly in the face of struggles and trials. You know, here in southern Louisiana, we've gone through enough hurricanes. That's a lot of damage, but guess what? When we all have to work together, we build some pretty strong friendships, some strong connections. But of course, it doesn't just happen. It takes work. It takes a lot of work, a lot of time. This is the long-haul heroism that Pete Davis talked about in that book I mentioned, Dedicated, which I really encourage you to read. And so he's talking about not only building up placeness, but also building up communities where people care for each other. They see each other. They know each other. They love each other. They respect each other. This is what we need. And another person who's spoken so beautifully about this, and I'm doing it just so I can quote him in all three days, is Wendell Berry. Not a Catholic, but still he gets it. He looks at all the crisis in the world, and he can be kind of gloom and doom sometimes, but he says, if we're to hope to correct our abuses of each other, and our other races and our land, and if our effort to correct these abuses is to be more than a political fad, which it normally ends up becoming, that will in the long run be only another form of abuse, he's correct with that, then we are going to have to go far beyond public protest and political action. This, I stumbled upon this a couple of years ago when all the protests were happening. Great, all the politicians are talking, what are we going to do? Not that much has changed. But he says, we are going to have to rebuild the substance and the integrity of private life in this country. We're going to have to gather up the fragments of knowledge and responsibility that we have parceled out to the bureaus and the corporations and the specialists. It's their responsibility. No, it's our responsibility. And put those fragments back together in our own minds and in our families and households and neighborhoods. We need better governments, no doubt about it, but we also need better minds, better friendships, better marriages, better communities. We need persons and households that do not have to wait upon organizations, but can make necessary changes in themselves on their own. This is subsidiarity. It's hard, particularly here uptown, you're not living in the rural community. It's hard to go to your neighbor and ask for a cup of sugar. But the reality is what happens in the society needs to happen in the church too we need healing and I can offer you some general suggestions everybody needs to be more inviting and welcoming we can have potluck suppers we used said wisdom we used to have cocktail hours it's awesome parish cocktail parties talk about people come to that now, if you're under 21 you can't come You ever had a parish cocktail party oh, it's a lot of fun. Get get Monsignor to make the cocktails for you. He's really good at that. Take a collection after two. It's like whenever you have an auction, you've got to make sure that there's beer and whiskey. Wait about an hour or two. Yeah. But I want to put it within a larger context and sort of wrap things up and try to land the plane here. By tying it back to Exodus one final time. One final time. So yeah, there is, we're going to get out, we're going to get out of Egypt, we're going to do all these things, there's the plan, you're going to have the land, you're going to have the community, but how is God's plan going to be executed? We're going to get you where you can worship all you want. Well, nine plagues come, and then finally it's the time for the tenth plague, the angel of death. Yahweh, through Moses, tells Israel you're going to celebrate the Passover. You're going to slaughter this lamb and you're going to gather in your home as a family and you're going to eat it. You're going to put the blood on the doorpost and the angel of death will pass by and not kill you. The Egyptians are going to freak out. They're going to give you their money and they're going to let you go. This is Passover. And it's Exodus chapter 12 verses 1 to 13 that give the specific terms for celebrating the Passover then and in the years to come. And I'm not going to read the whole entire thing, but I encourage you to. But I can tell you, if you read it, two things are going to become very evident. That it is done in a home, and it is done within the family context. Not only then, but all the way through. Passover, the worship, the liturgy celebrated as families in the home, and even as it went on, whenever there was this rule called uh, the Haburaf, that if you were traveling, or you weren't with your physical family, and you time to celebrate the Passover, you became a family. The place where you were became a home. So Jesus was with his, his apostles The Habarov took over. It became a home. It became his family. And of course, Christ celebrated the Passover. Whether or not we're going to accept that the Last Supper was technically a Passover or not, regardless, he took the Passover and transformed it in his own passion, death, and resurrection. He gave us the Eucharist, gave us the Holy Mass, the sacrifice of the Mass. And he gave us the feast to celebrate. Every Sunday, yes... Every day, yes, but particularly during a time of the Paschal Triduum. Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. We need to celebrate this Passover as they did. And listen to what Ratzinger says specifically about the church celebrating the Mass, but particularly within the context of Holy Thursday, Good Friday, which there's no Mass on Good Friday, of course, but Easter Sunday. This feast needs to become a family celebration once again. For it is the family that is the real bastion of creation and humanity. Passover is a summons urgently reminding us that the family is a living home in which humanity is nurtured, which banishes chaos and futility, and which must be protected as such. That was the thing in the house, there's chaos outside, there's darkness, there's destruction. But if you're here, offering sacrifice, offering worship in a home with your family, you're safe. And so this is the same exact principle. This is the home. This is our family. This is the worship and the sacrifice that we offer. This is the placeness. This is the rest and the joy this is where it all comes together. It all comes together. So my ultimate point is, if we're going to solve the symptom of a lack of Eucharistic belief and poor mass attendance, yeah, we need rest in order for us to be able to worship. Yeah, we need a placement, placeness and a connection to the rhythms and the liturgical calendar. of the the church, but we also need to foster relationship and create community in the church by creating and establishing a home and forming a family, ideally in the parish, but if not in small communities, wherever two or more gathered, I don't care what it is, ideally we're here talking at a parish mission to be able to create it in a parish. This is my home. These are my brothers and sisters. This is my family. I'm not, again, I think Monsignor is doing a wonderful job at it. See the, the love and the connection that people have. A place where people feel welcome. What is a home like? You feel welcome there. You feel safe from the chaos outside. Where people are affirmed in their identity. They're loved. They know that it's good that they exist. They're formed as sons and daughters. Those who are struggling are accompanied or protected. It's a place where people belong. And I think in a certain degree, this is what Pope Francis is trying to say. You've got to feel a place where people belong. Granted, just the prodigal son belonged to the father's house. You've got to clean up a little bit before you come in sometimes. But what are we doing about that? To create this place that's welcome. The Father's house. This is it. The Father, this the church is the Father's house. The prodigal son becomes so important. I can give a whole retreat on that. And what taught me this was my experience as pastor at a Lady of Wisdom for 11 years. And I'm never going to tire of talking about this. It's different than other parishes. Why? Because the students lived there from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. Sounds crazy, but they did. There was always people there. And I lived on-site. Didn't have to, but I did. And so every day, you see the same people for four years, sometimes five years, some of their special seven years. They would hang out. They'd drink coffee. They'd play, study together. Sometimes they'd sleep there I'd kick them out at night. We had activities, small Bible studies, retreats, mission trips discipleship, spiritual direction. We had a coffee shop there to make it inviting. So much was focused on food, meals, the Eucharist. It was like a big family, a big home. We wanted people to hang out there. So often I would say, hey, send your kids to UL so they could come hang out here because we have a home away from home. Some of you may be old enough to remember, I'm not old enough to remember, but people who are old enough to remember told me, back in the day, if you lived in a dorm on campus, you used to have a dorm mom, who would act in loco parentis, in the place of your parents. So adults loved sending their kids to wisdom because they knew I was going to be in loco parentis. And the staff were gonna watch out for them. And so I really experienced, I came to know what it meant to be a father by in a way that I hadn't before. I was a spiritual father. No. If you live with people for four years all the time and you can't beat them when they're bad, you are going to learn to be a father. Now try to be as loving, as welcoming as possible and never judging, always being their confession. We have an hour or two hours a day. And when I'd fuss, they understood it. You're just being dad. It's not a big deal. They don't, No one went to the bishop. One, one, one of the missionaries said, wisdom is a place you can't hide. You're going to be seen. Even I was seen. If I was in a bad mood, everybody knew it. If I was struggling, hey, Father, what's going on? You, you, you don't get that in the normal parish because you see Father one hour a week. Most Catholics do. They see each other one hour a week. How do you really know what someone's doing? I said, no, it's actually a place where you're seen, known, and loved. That's what a home is. You're recognized, you're seen, you're known, and you're loved. So it's more than a community. It's more than a place, it's a home. It's more than a community, it's a family. Positive, this is where you're seen, known, and loved. With these small groups. These things end up transforming lives. And what ended up happening, too, or at least what I I witnessed, is that as people ended up leaving, there was a nostalgia to want to come back. I would see that, too, in people who come back after 50 years. Wow, you know, I remember this, what life was like at a campus ministry. Some of you maybe have had campus ministry in your life, and it affected you. It's so important. I'm not saying that it was perfect, but I'm saying that it can give an inspiration for what I think small faith communities and parish life could be like. What if all parishes were like that—not just a place to go to mass or, or get ma- to, to go to mass or get masses out of the office, but a location, a real place, a home where people gathered. they felt welcome, they felt seen, known, and loved, but they felt like they were part of a family. And maybe it exists over here, but we can always work at it better. How can it be done in parishes? Maybe it's gonna be really difficult to do it every day, but I can tell you it can be done on Sundays. It can be done on Sundays. And I think taking some of the elements we've been discussing, good liturgy and worship, which I'll do over here, the 10.30 a.m. Mass is beautiful. Making the parish a destination, a place of rest. Hey, I want you to come to Mass and you can stay after. We're gonna have a big meal. We're gonna have an omelette station, we're gonna put some money into it, we're gonna have a cappuccino bar, whatever. It's gonna take some money, people need to learn to give. Games with the kids of the family, encouraging families to visit. Get them to see after mass, begin very gradually forming that community. And people who want to be involved, who want to be leaders, I'm not telling you how to do it. We had students, but we also had 300 families. And people would visit for a long time after mass. And if it's not going to be in a parish, it can be in small groups or at schools. In Lafayette right now, the young adults have this group called Y'all, the young adults of Lafayette, Louisiana, and they repeatedly get 75 to 100 people to gather. Same thing's happen over at St. Catharines. They're forming their own community. They're doing it. Parishes are trying their best, but sometimes again, things change. Again, demographics change. So that's it. If we can start building that community, people will come, and I saw it in my experience. We had one of the biggest ministries in the nation. We produced a lot of vocations. I'm not trying to toot my horn here, but there are best practices. a and does it. Nebraska does it. I think we can learn from this and apply it in parishes and small groups by creating locations, places, homes where people are seen, known, in love. It's gonna take a lot of work, but it's rewarding. In conclusion, all of this though, this Passover, everything we've talked about, land, liturgy, worship, is all a foretaste of what is coming in the next life. Our happy home, the heavenly Jerusalem, the real place of eternal rest where Sabbath will happen for all eternity. You're never gonna have to go to work, you're gonna have your own mansion. It's going to be the city of peace. We're going home, and we're going to be in the community of saints with our brothers and sisters. And there's going to be Mass going on 24 hours a day. you are going to be worshiping God. This is what we hope for, but we can have a foretaste of it and the joy and the blessedness here if we enter into it. And that's my prayer, not just for y'all, but I think for myself and for every small community, the seminary included. We can start doing what we're called to do, to have a foretaste in the liturgy and all of those things around it of what we are destined for. Beatitude, heaven, to live eternally as sons and daughters of God our Heavenly Father. Amen.